Hello everybody and welcome to episode 3 of Reason Town. Today we're going to talk about external writing code that interfaces with the outside world. And here I am with my co-host Jared Forsyth. Howdy. And I'm Murphy Randall. And today we are sponsored by Day One, which is the company I work for, which is a beautiful journaling and life archiving app. I love Day One and I hope you will too if you try it out. And also we have a new sponsor, our bandwidth sponsor, TylerMcGinnis.com, which is the linear course course based <laughs> which is the linear course based approach to learning web technologies. Big thanks to TylerMcGinnis.com for sponsoring our bandwidth. This makes the show possible and we're grateful to him for that. Now, announcements-wise, there is a ReasonConf announced. I'm just going to give a little applause here. That's exciting. ReasonConf 2018 in Vienna on the 11th through the 13th of May. And I believe ticket sales are open currently. Uh, and you are going to help with that. Is that right, Jared? That's right. I'll be giving um, a workshop for uh, helping people get started with Reason, along with a couple other people. Oh, so cool. I was dying to go and realize that the stars did not align for me and I have another trip instead that's going to be uh, keeping me occupied during that time. So I won't be there, but I will be there in heart. So very exciting and hope you can get tickets and, and go be interested as well. So let's jump right in, Jared. Today we're going to talk about uh, FFI. Actually, not. we're going to talk about external, but um, a term that we often hear when we're talking about programming is FFI. Can you explain a little bit about what that means and why we care? So FFI uh, stands for Foreign Function Interface, and it comes from the world of uh, systems programming, I think, where... Um, you know, C has has been kind of the standard language uh, for a while, and then there were all these languages that were built on top of it to some extent, um, like Java um, and Objective C and other things. Um, and they wanted to take advantage of libraries that were still written in C, and so there was this ability to say from Java call a function that was written in C. Um, and so OCaml has this. Um, Swift has this, all kinds of things. Um, and nowadays it, it just stands for basically calling a function in a language that isn't the language that you're working with. So in, in the reason uh, example that we're going to be talking about, you're writing in reason, but you want to call a function that's defined in JavaScript. That is correct. I'm, that's funny to say. I didn't mean that's <laughs> correct as in like, you passed the test, but I, I concur. I agree with what you're saying. And so the reason this is important to me, even though I'm just learning Reason, is that uh, the primary reason that I'm using Reason is to write JavaScript with Reason. And <laughs> that's what I'm going <laughs> to say. So my main use case, even though Reason can be used to write uh, native code, etc., cetera, I, my, my main motivation for using it has been to interface with JavaScript libraries and to write JavaScript code. So I had to learn the external interface right away. And uh, so we're going to go through some of those ideas today. Um, so let's really quickly highlight that there are multiple approaches to interfacing with outside code, or rather with, like you said, another language, maybe the host language. Um, you, you Maybe you've heard of Elm. Elm takes a totally different approach than what we're going to talk about today. Reason's approach is very straightforward in that you are writing bindings for the language and assigning types to existing job, untyped JavaScript code. So the first thing we should say before moving farther is here be dragons. I mean, if you are not <laughs> used to type systems, 
this is a place where you have to be really careful. Um, yeah, well, even if you, if you're not confident that you understand the API of the library that you're going to wrap, or the behavior of the code that you're going to wrap, this is a very dangerous place. Uh, and when I say dangerous, I mean this is the place on these borders are the places where you have the potential to make Reason's type system dishonest, to make it lie. Because this is where you go ahead and say, trust me, Reason, the thing that you're calling out to has these types and will return these values. And if you're not trustworthy when you write this, this wrapping interface, then Reason's type checker can't help you anymore and you'll end up with some nasty and confusing runtime errors. So, so caveat before you move any further, please be very careful here. This is like the place where you need to be most careful when writing your Reason code because the, the, the compiler can't help you if you are irresponsible with your, with your external code. Um, and one thing about yeah. that is um, when you're, say you're, you're running your tests and, and there's something weird happening, it's easy to say, oh, let, let's go check our externals. Um, you know, th this is in contrast to, for example, Flow or TypeScript, where there's just about zero barrier between you and uh, the unsafe JavaScript world. You, you kind of have to crawl through all of your code to find the places where an any slipped in. Um, in Reason, it at least corrals it all into kind of one place. You know, you, you look for any, any place that you've used an external, and then you can double check that. Um, and then, as you said, on the, on the far other side is Elm, where um, it, it does a lot more or it, it um, forces you to, to do a lot more of the legwork to um, verify that you're not letting in any unsound types. Which is actually, I think, one of the biggest advantages for Reason over TypeScript and Flow is that they make the interface with the JavaScript code very explicit. I'm, like very explicit. And so that I think is, is a great design decision because part, my biggest frustration from using both TypeScript and Flow has been this kind of loosey-goosey uh, interaction between types and JavaScript and like not knowing where the bad types are coming from. And like, like you said, where my innies are sneaking in and then innies are like poison because they, they go in one place and then they just like spread out throughout the rest of the app if you're not super disciplined. So I love that the compiler here is saying, nope, you gotta pay special attention to the code that, that, that wraps the outside world and make sure that you're being honest. And even still with all of that compiler saying, hey, pay attention to me, um, I, we end up with bugs in the wrapping code because we have certain expectations about how the libraries we are wrapping behave. And then they don't behave that way, and it causes causes pain. So, um, in fact, I was one of the libraries that I was recently wrapping. That was a big problem I had. Is the code my my app wasn't behaving how it should have? And a couple hours into the night, I realized that the big problem is that the library that I'm wrapping didn't behave as I had expected it to, um, and there wasn't documentation for the part that I was doing. So um, those couple hours that I was spending debugging weren't Reason's fault at all, but were in fact the, just my bad assumptions about the way the library worked. So yeah, that's step number one is make sure you actually know what your, how the thing that you're wrapping behaves, right? Yeah, um, and I, I think we might see in the future uh, a little bit more handholding for Reason, doing things like checking the type as it crosses the border to make sure that the, that the JavaScript library is doing what you expected it to. Um, which which would pay some runtime cost at um, and give you a little bit more uh, safety and stability. 
And that's neat. So Elm does that too. That's part of the way that Elm tries to keep itself pure from, from those kind of assumption accidents mm-hmm. uh, where it's just like, yep, no bad things aren't actually allowed into reason world, which would be pretty neat. Yeah. Um, so let's talk about the external key keyword. That's what you're going to be looking for uh, when you're defining a, an FFI function to JavaScript. Tell me how that works. So yeah, so actually let's have you tell me really quickly the way that you typically are going to use an external command to define and wrap something is you're going to throw some brackets and an aroba declaration at the front of the line. And now an aroba is is the at symbol. I've never as heard we that Americans word. You never have? Never I, when I moved word. to South America, I learned that that's called an aroba. Um, wow. I think that's actually English Isn't that a frisbee? Aroba? Well. I don't know. Good question. <laughs> Certainly, it looks like a frisbee, the at symbol. So at the beginning of the line, you're going to put uh, a square bracket and then the at symbol or an aroba, and you're going to put in some directive to buckle script. So BS dot module or send. We're going to talk about that in just a second. But you're going to basically give like a, a directive to buckle script. Now, here's where I want to ask you, Jared. Uh, what is that? In, in braces, in the square braces, what is that? Is that a buckle script directive? Is that How does that relate to reason in OCaml? What do I call that declaration between square braces? So when you see the at sign or the aroba, um, that's called a decorator. Um, and it's generally surrounded by square braces. Um, and so you might be familiar with decorators from JavaScript. Um, there's a, I guess there's a proposal that hasn't been accepted yet. Um, also from Python, um, but basically th- this decorator is is something that um, post processors, so syntax plugins essentially can look for this and then decide to do some transformation on that. Mm. Um, and there are a number of BuckleScript specific decorators. Um, they all start with bs dot something. Um, that's how you know that this is this is hooking into something that BuckleScript knows about first class. Um, but there are also decorators for um, generating functions from a type uh, and some other handy macro-like functionality. Very cool. So that then in the square braces, that's a macro. Now, I've also seen those square braces around things that are wrapped with a percent BS something or an percent percent BS something. Or in your case, you've written a syntax extension for async. Uh, so every time I see... Um, a square bracket, a set of square brackets like that. Is that saying that I'm going to run into some syntax extension? Yeah. Um, so the the difference here is a a percent sign, um, an extension point is going to be replaced with some code, um, whereas a decorator is is just kind of annotating some code that's already there that might end up being transformed. Okay. Very cool. So. So to go back to the original thing that I was saying, sorry to interrupt, is we start out the line with a decorator then. And we're going to give some instruction to BuckleScript about what it should do with our next, the next thing we're going to write. So we start the decorator and then we write external let, uh, oh wait, sorry, not a let. Yes, a let? Boy, I should have reviewed this before we started the podcast. No let. External kind of takes the place of let. That's right. Okay, so you write the decorator and then the keyword external and then the name of the symbol you want to bind. So, for example, if I'm going to bind to math.random on the global scope, 
I would use the decorator bs.scope and I'd throw in strings math to say this is on the global uh, scope of math, which is available on window. Um, and then I would put the keyword external and then I'd type random and then I'd give it a type. So I'd put in a colon and say what that is. Now I might put a function definition there where random is going to be a function that takes unit and unit is, uh, we should explain that. I don't know if we've explained that before. Unit is basically just a value that means like nothing, right? This is a function that takes nothing. So, and, and it's resembled uh, in the type sphere. You can just type the actual word unit as a value. It's just open and close parens. So it would be a function that takes unit and returns a random number, right? So you'd return a type of float probably. And then, oh, and do you, you have something to say there? And unit um, in reason is uh, very similar to null in JavaScript or void in Java um, or nil in Clojure um, and also void in flow and maybe TypeScript. The, the thing about reason is that it's very, um, you, you have to be honest about where you're going to return something or not. In, in Java, there's the famous null pointer exception, um, which reason's unit doesn't allow. If it returns unit, it's never going to return anything. That's right. Only unit. The only type, the only value that occupies the type unit is unit which is awesome, right? You can never have something that is a value and be like, oh, actually, that, that's a unit, or like expect the type unit and get something else. It's always just unit. Yep. Is that correct? That's right. Cool. So at that point in the external de declaration, we have uh, like external random, give it a type, which is the function from unit to, to float, and then you use the equal sign, and here's where we're going to uh, introduce, then you put a string that says, I'm going to bind to this name in the JavaScript world. And you can either write random there, so it's like external random of type this equals the string random, or you can leave it as an empty string and it'll use some syntactic sugar to say, well, I'll use whatever the name after external is. So that was a very confusing explanation uh, for audio, but it starts to make more sense once you're looking at it in person. Um, is that... Is that under review right now, Jared? Is there the possibility that that syntax might change? Um, it uh, it's something that I kind of want to change, um, but there there hasn't been much discussion about it so far. Um, the the interesting the reason we're using decorators here is that the external syntax um, comes directly from OCaml, and a world where you're you're having uh, this um, richer language interfacing with C. Uh, where C is um, much more basic in the kind of things that it can represent. Um, and so the external syntax doesn't, uh, doesn't know about object-oriented functions that you might be calling, for example, um, or scopes. In C, every function is a function at the top level. There's no scopes. Um, and so BuckleScript had to add these decorators to say, oh, you know, this, this primitive was meant to interface with a very uh, primitive language, um, now that we're interfacing with JavaScript, we have to have more information about the kind of functions we might be expecting. So I've been thinking, I've been brainstorming about what it would look like to have a syntax primitive that was made with JavaScript in mind so that mm, it, yeah. it would make more sense, um, maybe look a little bit more like a JavaScript import statement. Um, I don't know. Yeah, that's really, that's an interesting 
place to explore with the ideas. So we don't know if that's something that will ever change. But at the at this point, I'll say that it took me a, a bit to kind of wrap my head around the syntax. But once it clicked, it made a lot more sense. And uh, something that it took me a while to realize too, and talking with you, Jared, was that, wow, this, this FFI, this uh, design for this foreign function interface is very powerful. If you dig into the buckle script docs for the external the external directives and uh, the decorators. I'm using all the wrong words, I'm sure. But if you dig into the docs there, you'll realize that there's, you can almost represent any way that a JavaScript thing would be defined or called with this external uh, FFI, which is, which is really neat. So that makes it really powerful to quickly write wrapper code. Now that's with the caveat that if you're writing wrapper code for a JavaScript library, you probably wanna end up writing something that's a little more idiomatic functional reason than the normal JavaScript library API will look because usually JavaScript library APIs are very object oriented and very JavaScripty and very much like, oh, well, you could pass in an object here or a string or an int or undefined or a function, you know, we'll just do whatever we think is best based on what you pass in. Um, things are a little bit more structured in reason world. So if you are wrapping a library, I'd suggest taking a minute to think about what would this library look like if it were written in reason, rather than just saying, well, I'll just do exactly what JavaScript does. Um, so caveat aside, let's talk about the, uh, like maybe four of those decorators that are very important to getting started with external. What, what do you think, Jared? What are some of those? So um, if you are, for example, wrapping a, a node library, something you get off NPM, um, you're definitely going to need the bs.module uh, decorator, which means you, you pass in the name of the module you're going to import, and BuckleScript behind the scenes will actually generate a require statement um, and then use that whenever you're uh, calling the external functions associated with it. So you just do bs.module and then the string um, say Firebase, if you're using the Firebase module. Excellent. Uh, that one's probably the, the most essential one if you're binding to libraries, like you said, and not just binding to your own code. Though, uh, we will say, I mean, binding to your own code, if you're going to put it in a separate module, you'll need that as well, um, ver versus just writing your code in line, which you can actually do, and we're not going to talk about, because that's that's a bs.raw statement. Um, so, yeah, which is even even more dangerous. That's for yeah, Perl. Very much. I would just say just avoid that if possible. Um, yeah. yeah. So, so uh, you're right. The, the bs.module statement also, you can put in a relative path, and it'll require you know a, a function that's or a JavaScript file that's adjacent to your reason file. That's right. There's a there's a small bug with the current uh, BuckleScript compiler that we'll talk about later. So that's a little uh, caveat to doing that, but we'll talk about that after. So next one I'd say is bs.send. Now this is one I didn't know about for a while, but it's super cool. Uh, bs.send allows you to say, take a value from uh, from the JavaScript world and call a function on it or get an attribute from it. So for example, like if there's a subscribe function on Firebase, which I haven't used Firebase in a while, but pretend there's firebase.subscribe, you might say uh, bs.send uh, and then you say x, what would it be? bs.send, that's right, bs.send and then external subscribe and then you give the type and the first parameter for that type that you are, you're, you're basically defining a function here, right? You're gonna say bs.send uh, function and the first parameter to that function will be the thing on which you want to call 
the, the name subscribe. I didn't describe that super well. Point is, you can send, uh, you can call functions on objects using this. What did you want to clarify, Jared? <laughs> well, let's maybe let's use the example of promises, where you've got a promise you want to call dot then on it, um, and there's no there's no library function that's called then um, that takes a promise as the first argument and the function as a second argument. Um, it's just, it's an object-oriented call. And so the bs.send means on the reason side, this is going to look like a normal functional function. But on the JavaScript side, take whatever first argument I give you and treat that as the base object to call this function on. That was a much better explanation. <laughs> so excellent. Go with that one. Uh, so that's super useful. bs.send is super useful. Um, next, bs.new. Very simple. It just calls new on whatever you're, pass you're, you're decorating it with. Oh, and let's also throw in an external declaration can have more than one decorator. So you can have bs.module and bs.new, which is, in fact, often where you'll use new, right? So you import a module and call new on it. That's something that people design into their APIs. Yeah. Uh, so, so that'll do that. And last one, we've already mentioned in the examples, bs.scope. In, the difference between bs.scope and bs.module is module will put in a require statement for you uh, depending upon what your module implementation that you choose for the compiler is. Uh, but bs.scope will not put an import statement or a require statement in. It will just assume that whatever you are binding to is on the global scope. So that's what you'd use for something like uh, math.random or json.decode or json.stringify, for example. Yep. So I think those are the most important four. Do you have any others that you'd want to mention, Jared? No, that's pretty good. You, you can you can dig around in the BuckleScript docs, um, and there's there are several more that, um, like you said, if if you're imagining what would this look like if it were reason first, if it were functional first, you might want to get into some of that. Um, but these will definitely get you off the ground. So let's talk about that now. Moving into maybe a section where let's let's say. How, this is how you wrap your first library, wrapping your first library. Uh, the first thing I'd say here is going back to thinking in reason. So uh, we're not, in reason, we're not going to necessarily try to use the old object-oriented approach where we're going to get an object with a bunch of functions on it. Instead, we're going to think about objects themselves and functions that take those objects and return either those objects mutated or new objects. So my recommendation would be uh, to see if you could take whatever library you're going to wrap and start to think of it in terms of opaque types and the functions that operate on those opaque types. Now, what's an opaque type, Jared? An opaque type is a type that um, you're not allowed to look into. Um, and libraries will use this, for example, they, they might have some type, maybe it's a hash map, maybe it's a list, <clears throat> that they're using internally and... Um, modifying and what have you, but they don't want uh, external users to be able to get in there and mess around um, because maybe they have an, some invariants that they want to maintain. And so, in the in the external interface, the the API that they show to the outside world, they say, "Here's this type. You can't know what it is." Um, but and and so, in order to create that type, you have to ask that library and you know the library has to expose here's how you create this type here's how you mutate that type and then here's how you get useful information out of it afterwards 
And when we're working with externals, um, a, a nice way to do it is treat it in a similar fashion. Say there's this type that is Firebase and it exists in the JavaScript world. On the reason side, we're not allowed to introspect it. You just have to use these other external functions that I've defined in order to do operations on it and get useful information out. Exactly. So the the Firebase opaque type, one example might be like a connection. So maybe you define a Firebase module in Reason. It's called Firebase. And you say type connection, and it's an opaque type. There's nothing you can call on it. It just is there. And then maybe you make a function that takes a an address to your Firebase uh, lo location. I don't remember what they're called. Your Firebase store and returns a connection. So now you've got a connection that the only thing you can do with it is pass it to functions that take a connection. But maybe what you want to do is like get access to a collection off of that connection. And so you've got another function that takes a connection in the name of a collection and returns a collection. So is that, I hope that's making sense. So you're starting to get just a collection of data, of opaque types, which are data, and the functions that operate on them, which take them, do something, and return others. Um, so that's a very functional way of thinking of things, and it's actually pretty straightforward in general to try to take object-oriented things and wrap them in this way, and that's nice. Um, do you want to talk a little bit, Jared, about the illusion of immutability? Uh, and you know, because Reason is immutable by default in a lot of ways, except for certain collections. But often, when you're wrapping a library, you'll have an, an API that looks immutable, but you'll really be mutating things. Do you want to talk about that for a second? Yeah, um, and so in in Reason, when when you, for example, have a mutable thing that you're working with, um, the uh, what the paradigm, the best practice, the the general way that it's indicated, oh, this function you're calling is mutating, is that it just returns unit. So you call this function, it doesn't give you anything back, and that means whatever it is that you had to start with, that must be what you are still working with, right? So that, that is what changed. Um, and I don't know, I don't know where else you want me to go with this. No, that makes sense. Uh, I think that was good. The thing, I should have said it myself, so I'll say it now. The thing that I've noticed here is that often if you're not totally used to mutable versus immutable, you can maybe, uh, be covering up the fact that something is mutable with your API design. So like you said, Jared, uh, if you're going to wrap a function that is mutating something, you might consider making it return unit so that the users know that the thing that's getting passed in is getting mutated instead of uh, changed. Or I'm sorry, instead of copied, instead of uh, immutably copied and returned. Because you you never know when you're gonna get you know a an object that's referenced from some other part of the code, and then you go ahead and mutate it, not thinking that you're mutating it. That could be a, a nasty place for bugs to hide. Uh, is when you're mutating stuff that's shared across the code base. So think about that when you're wrapping your library too. That's uh, right. And <clears throat> one way to get around that is to make functions in Reason that. Um, that immutably build up whatever state you need, and then only at the end um, pass all that information to the JavaScript side and do the mutative stuff. For example, there's <clears throat> there's the builder pattern. Um, say, for example, with the Express library, the Node Express library, you call Express and you get back an app, and then you call a bunch of functions on it that mutate that app instance. 
Um, and then finally at the end, you call serve or listen or whatever it is that says, now start my server. If you were wrapping this in reason, you might make a, bun a bunch of functions that don't call into JavaScript at all, but are just building up the configuration information of what this server will need. So all of the handlers, all of the um, middleware and what have you. And then the last function when you say listen, then you, you create an app on the JavaScript side. You pass it all of these things and do all the mutative things, but only inside of your pure function so that um, on the reason side, you don't even have to worry about it. You can, you can treat everything as immutable because it is up until you call the final function. I love it. That's a great design practice. I think that's fantastic. And you'll find that in other, especially pure functional languages like Haskell. I don't know. Is that a kind of an established pattern in, in the OCaml world as well? Um, there, so in, in reason we're, we're still pretty new. There aren't, there aren't a whole ton of established patterns. Um, and in, in the broader OCaml world, you'll find the whole gambit. There are people that write OCaml um, kind of more embracing the mutable side and people that are embracing the functional side. Very cool. All right. So that's where we covered opaque types, functions on the types, uh, modules. We could mention that really quickly, but that's kind of basic reason code, right? So where you, d you define a module for yourself and drop types and functions into it. Maybe we don't need to go deeper into that. Uh, well, but actually, next a good... Um, a nice thing there is if, for example, you're, you've got a couple of object, um, object-oriented objects on the JavaScript side and you're making these functional style functions for them, um, it can get a little crowded if you have all of your functions for handling the Firebase object and the connection object and the query object all in a single scope. So in your wrapper library, you can make a module that's called connection and there you have all of the functions that deal with a connection and a module card query for the things dealing with a query, etc. Great point. Love it. So next is let's talk about if you're making maybe a, like an NPM package to wrap an existing library, like let's continue with the Firebase idea. So you're trying to make reason code that'll wrap up your fire a firebase npm install firebase kind of module so uh there are a couple of choices when it comes to dependencies when you're making your library and the preferred best practice choice is to just include your the firebase library as a dependency not a dev dependency not a pure dependency but just a dependency in your library so that when other authors when other um users install your package then it will have Firebase included already at the correct version. So they don't have to worry about getting your wrapper code and the Firebase library and making sure that they match up versions. The, the exception here, I think, would be unless you know that you need a peer dependency, don't use a peer dependency. So in some cases, that would be like React, for example, right? React is a big area where peer dependencies were used because you don't want to have 10 different versions of React that your code is using. Does that sound right, Jared? Well, and maybe a general rule for that is um, if you expect this library to be the only interface that people are going to be interacting with um, this NPM package, then then essentially hide it. You um, have it be your dependency. If you have um, maybe several libraries that are going to be wor working in concert, all interacting with the JavaScript objects that Firebase produces, 
um, then you'll want it to be a peer dependency to make sure that you only end up with one copy of that NPM package. Great point. Actually, this might be an interesting point to bring up that the BuckleScript standard library exposes a bunch of opaque types for working with things like the DOM, like or promises or common common data types that might be found between JavaScript libraries. And the reason they do just expose the opaque types and not functions that work on those types is because they say in the documentation, you know, there are a thousand ways to wrap these things and a lot of different uh, approaches to representing these uh, ways to work with these this data. And we don't want to be prescriptive about how to work with this, but we do want all of these libraries to have compatible data. So we're just going to publish the data types, these opaque types, and hope that all of these other libraries don't come with their own types, but use the common types. So it might be an interesting idea to even just publish a library that's a bunch of opaque types um, if it's a very popular uh, piece, of, piece of code that you're wrapping or a very popular library that you're wrapping where you just publish the types and then let other people, including yourself, interpret new ways of interacting with that data. That's an interesting idea. So you have compatibility between the libraries. Yeah. All right, so let's talk about gotchas. Uh, I've found, I think I only have one gotcha myself. I don't know if you have any more, Jared, but I'll mention while wrapping third-party code, I have run into the fact that at at the current version of BuckleScript, which is 1.9.0, the default behavior for... uh, imports for bs. Uh, bs.module statements is to inline the require where possible. So in other words, if module foo is if foo.re is calling bar.re and bar.re has a bs.module statement in it and all it is is wrapping external wrapping code, then the compiler will say, "You know what? We're just going to leave bar.re empty and inline all of that stuff into foo.re." Now this is cool and it's fine if your product is all internal if you're not us- if you're not publishing bar.re as its own npm module but if you have bar.re published as an npm module and it's and it's importing its own npm dependencies and then those imports get inlined into foo which is the thing that's calling bar then you're going to end up with a runtime error because foo can't require the child dependencies of bar at the moment. So uh, the way this is, I think this is a bug and the way to get around it, there are a couple ways. You could write an REI file because if you write an REI file, which is an interface to your reason file, then it won't throw, it won't uh, try to inline that code. It'll leave your, your reason, your, the code produced by your reason interface intact. And so the imports will all stay in the right place you can use, this is the trick you taught me, Jared, which is after a function that does an import like that, then you can just say, uh, let the name of the, the function equal the name of the function. So that's that's just a trick right there where, so for example, if I had defined like um, your external Firebase module, and then I would say, let Firebase equal Firebase. And that's just telling the reason code, don't optimize this out. This should stay in the module where it was defined. So that's uh, <laughs> a hacky, bug fix, but it does work. And another approach is to inline the code. So for example, if you're like trying to vendor a library and reference it using a relative path uh, and you're having a problem with the imports and you don't want to do the REI file and the other fix, then you can actually just do a bs.raw statement and you can paste in the entire library into your file. Probably the least preferable way to go, but (laughs) it it does work. Uh, Do you have any other gotchas about publishing libraries, Jared? 
Um, so one thing that you might want to do, I guess in, in this case, not so much, but in general, when you're publishing a reason library, you might want to also include the generated JavaScript so that a, a JavaScript um, client could, could use that library. Um, in, in this case, if you're already wrapping an NPM package, they could just use that uh, original one. Great point. Uh, but, you know, if, if you're writing a nice functional interface, then maybe someone will want to just use your functional interface because they know it's uh, hopefully well-designed, soundly typed. Okay, so after you're done writing all this stuff and after you're done being aware of the gotchas, why don't you go ahead and take your library to the Discord channel uh, that we've mentioned in previous podcasts and I will make a footnote for and uh, go to the channel pash, hashtag pound bindings to libraries is that right yeah bindings to libraries and ask for a review there mm -hmm. see if people think it's and good. uh people publish uh bindings that they've written um and discuss uh best practices there so you can get some good feedback very cool and then what comes after that jared how do you become famous so um a month ago i guess right at the end of last year there was a a reason index published. Um, so a, a website that aggregates different libraries that have been written in reason in a nice way that you can, in, instead of trawling through NPM and trying to figure out the right keywords, um, it just is a, an index of all the reason libraries, including bindings or pure reason libraries. And that's called redex, R-E-D-E-X dot github dot I-O. And uh, in order to get your package on there, uh, you can make a pull request to their uh, repository. They have some standards about things that you should include, um, a nice readme, uh, a variety of fields in the package.json that they use to uh, make the entry more rich. And uh, then when you get that merged, you are live on the site. Oh, that's awesome. Uh, so that would... Excellent. Okay, so submit it to Redex and get fame and glory. And then that's it. I mean, once it's published, you can go ahead and pull it down into your other Reason projects and depend on it just like you would any other normal Reason library. In fact, maybe we should mention that. Uh, the quick step is install your package from NPM, and then in your, your bs-config, go ahead and list your package name as a dependency, and you'll be able to use your own library, which is fantastic. That's right. right. And I that also works. I think we wrapped it up. Um, you go back and <laughs> I didn't mean to say hit it. That's something I didn't want to say either. Why don't you go repeat what you were going to say? So also, if you're just making a package that you want a little bit of separation, but you don't actually want it to be live on NPM, you can do uh, the same thing that um, works in the NPM world, where in the package.json you say, uh, here's this package, but it is local. Um, it's either in this repository or in an adjacent file. You can just give it a path um, that is where you can find this package that I wrote. And um, then npm install will find that and do all the right things, and BuckleScript will be able to find it as well. So that's a nice way. If, if you want the um, kind of the improved code quality that comes from separating your code into separate packages, but you don't actually want to share this or it's not ready or uh, whatever it is, you can still do that. Great point. Love that. We use that internally, and that's super useful. All right, I think it's picks time. Jared, do you have any picks? Um, one 
one package that I've used that's a, a wrapped reason library uh, is BS Jest. So that is if you are doing testing and you like the Jest test runner, there is a wrapper of it. Um, and you can, you can also look at the source code of that wrapper to get ideas for how to make a nice uh, functional wrapper of a JavaScript library. Super. And I've got two picks. One is BSJSON, which is also, well, that's actually not so much of a wrapper, but it is a, an encoding and decoding library for JSON for reason. And I, I really like it. I think it takes kind of some of a similar approach to Elm decoders, which are super useful. And basically BSJSON just makes a function that will take JSON and turn it into the format you expect. And if it doesn't look like that, it can optionally throw an error. So you can catch that and it'll give you information about what's missing. So that's a great way to say if you're pulling in data from the outside world and you want to make sure it looks how you think it looks before you just start using it, then you can use BSJSON to verify that and handle the case where it doesn't look like you want it to look. And the second one that I'll pick is Reason Elm, which is another library that has been uh, that uses external declarations to design the API for embedding an Elm app into your Reason code. Um, and this is something that I use for my projects at day one because we like to use Reason for writing JavaScript and then Elm for writing all the front end stuff. And that it's a really neat library. I think I mentioned a couple episodes back that I started a project like that. This is a better project. So go ahead and use this one instead, Reason Elm. Oh, cool. That's I thought all this I was the one that y'all had written. Nope, no, somebody else came along and did a better job, which is something fantastic. <laughs> I love it when that happens. That's great. All right, that's it for me, Jared. Any last notes? Nope, that sounds great. See you around. All right. Thanks, everyone. Bye.